Let's open up our Bibles now to Romans chapter 11 as we continue in this glorious epistle that we have been given by the Lord through our brother Paul. Romans chapter 11, we'll be picking up where we left off last week. That has us in verse 7. We're going to be considering this morning together verses 7 through 10. Hear now the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 11, verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David said, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, for this good, pure, perfect gift that that holds for your people such encouragement, such hope, such life, that through your spirit working through your word, we are transformed into the likeness of our Savior, even brought from death to life. And I pray, God, that you would accomplish your good purposes by your spirit through your word this morning. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, no biblically-minded Christian would deny that God is sovereign. That's not to say some Christians don't deny that God is sovereign. Many do. They're just not biblically-minded when they do so. It's all over the scriptures. Every faithful Christian would have to affirm that God is sovereign, that he is all-powerful, that he is actively in control of the world. But there are certain aspects to God's sovereignty that Christians like to reject. They like to argue over and turn their backs on. They're, They're tempted to reject them. And it's not because scripture is unclear It's not because Scripture is difficult to understand. It's because they offend our human sensitivities. And so we want to reject them. Well, Romans chapters 9 through 11 has sort of driven us right into the heart of those issues, those very issues that Christians want to pull back from and turn their face from. And and really it comes down to this. Who is really in control? Who is really in control when it comes to salvation and damnation? Is God really in control or is man really in control? And that's, that's the heart of the controversy that to the center of, and we can't escape it. And our passage today is taking us even deeper as Paul speaks to us of God's hardening work, not a way we often think about God. It's called the doctrine of reprobation. Or the doctrine of preterition, which just means passing over. The doctrine of, of, uh, it's the difficult truth of God's hardening of sinners' hearts. Well, the beauty of expository preaching like we do here, which is just to go verse by verse through books of the Bible, is we can't avoid this stuff. We can't just skip over it because it's uncomfortable. Or Believe me, there are times sitting in my study working on a sermon as we've been going through these last chapters in Romans thinking, I'm going to be in trouble for this. People are going to be upset with me if I say what Paul's really saying here. People are going to quit our church, and frankly, 
People have quit our church over the things Paul is saying in Romans 9, 10, and 11. It's a fact. We would try to avoid these sections of Scripture, or at the very least, take them out of context and twist their meaning if we're going to try to talk to them at all. But instead, because we're going verse by verse through the whole book, we have to deal with them, and we have to deal with them in their setting, in their context, as Paul is really presenting it to us. We can't just lift it out and deal with it on its own and go, well, it really means this because we've read what comes before it and we know what's coming after it, and we can't do that with the text of Scripture. So we are forced to deal with every word of God and to wrestle with what it really means. And that, friends, is a gift. It's a blessing. It's a privilege. It's a joy. As we do so, though, we need to remind ourselves of this. Every word of God is good. Every word of God is pure. Every word of God is right and just. Whatever God does is good. And it's beautiful. And every single word of Scripture, including these doctrines that we've now been studying for weeks, are useful in equipping us to live lives that honor God. We remind ourselves of that when we get into this deep water that Paul has brought us into. And so, no, we won't be apologizing for what the Bible teaches. You may have discovered that about me already. We won't be doing that because... Whatever God does is good. It is right. It is just. Whatever the word of God teaches is beautiful. It is the very word of God. God forbid that we would ever apologize for it or be ashamed of what it teaches. We're not going to skip over it. We're not going to be embarrassed by it. It's good. It's pure. It's beautiful. It's, it's righteous. And so we're going to teach it as such. But Paul has been challenging us He has been challenging our assumptions about God. In chapter 9, he pointed us to God's sovereign purpose of election, and he told us God is free to save whoever he wants to save. Chapter 9, verse 18, he says, He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That's challenging for us. But even though God is completely sovereign over who is saved, Paul makes it clear in chapter 10 as he talks about Israel, that Israel and by extension all unbelievers are 100% responsible for their unbelief. They can't point at God and go, well, this was your eternal plan anyway, so why are you holding me accountable? Paul's removed any ability to, to do that from us. And as we came to chapter 11 last week, Paul told us God still has a plan for Israel to save an elect remnant. He said in, in, in verse 5, There is a remnant chosen by grace. So as we come to our verses today, they act as something of a summary of what Paul's been saying now in these three chapters, all that he has said. We know that from the first words. Look at the first words in in verse 7. What then? In other words, what are we to conclude from all that I've just said, all this teaching I've just done? What's the conclusion that we should come to? And here's his conclusion in verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, but the elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. So so here we have, in this plain statement from Paul, we see God's activity in both salvation and unbelief, in drawing to himself and in hardening. How are unbelievers hardened? The answer from the text is God hardens them. 
That's Paul's first answer. He says, the rest were hardened. In other words, it's something that was done to them. Some were saved, that was done to them. The rest were hardened, that was done to them. We see in verse 8, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Again, remember chapter 9, verse 18, Paul's already told us he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Again, these things are not unclear in Scripture. That's not, that's not a confusing statement on Paul's part. He has mercy on whomever he wills, he hardens whomever he wills. We don't read that sentence and go, I wonder what he could mean by that. Who hardens? No, it's clear. It's difficult for us to accept, yes, but it's not unclear. He's not being obtuse, and it is the clear, repeated teaching of Scripture. If we just had that one statement in the middle of a whole Bible that never said anything that sounded like that, we'd be like, what is Paul doing? What's going on? But that's not true. It's the clear, repeated teaching of the Word of God. It is not new theology on Paul's part. Proverbs 16, verse 4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. The Lord made the wicked for the day of trouble. John chapter 12, verse 37 Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, that's Jesus, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 39 says, therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. In Isaiah, brought all the way into the New Testament, into the Gospel of John. John chapter 13, verse 18, Jesus is speaking of Judas's unbelief. He says to the group of disciples, I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So Jesus, speaking to the disciples, says, I know who I chose. I chose my people, and one of you ain't it. Again, from the words of Christ himself. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, So the honor is for you who believe, but to those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Jude 4, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designed for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Of course, we've we've studied Romans chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 13. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And then Paul goes on to explain, now listen, that was before they were born or did anything. God just picked one and not the other. Verse 17 of of chapter 9. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. How did God raise Pharaoh up? Well, he brought him to a position of power so he could crush him in front of everyone. We could go on and on and on and on. This is just the tip of the iceberg that Scripture shows us referencing God's sovereignty, not only over creation, not only over over when we're born and where we live, but over belief and unbelief. I hope you can see it's not just a verse or two. It's a repeated theme in Scripture, and we cannot ignore it. 
Imagine if there's this massive weight, a unified voice from Scripture, and we, because of our, our frail human understanding, go, well, I'm ignoring that. I don't like that one bit. Can you think of something more arrogant than that attitude? Oh, that, that the Lord would not allow us to be those people. To be perfectly clear with you, though, this does not make God the cause of sin. That's what happens. Human philosophy comes in and goes, if we're to believe all these statements, that must mean God is causing sin. He's forcing people to sin. That's not the case at all. The Bible makes many, many statements and then doesn't explain them. It just puts this truth out there, right? It, it, just, it just lays it out. We, we get statements in Scripture not followed by mechanical explanations about all the details of the ins and outs of how it works in the eternal plan and mind of the infinite God. For, for example, Samson's sinful desire for the Philistine women and his disobedience to God in marrying them, Judges chapter 14, verses 3 and 4, describes it like this. His father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives, among our people, that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. So, so, so there's Samson's sin. There's his father saying, Don't do this. What are you doing? Don't go marry a Philistine, and Samson is hardened in his heart, and he says, no, go get it. And then verse 4 says this, his father and mother didn't know that it was from the Lord, that, that he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So the Bible's explanation, why is Samson so fixated on marrying this Philistine woman and sinning against God, the Bible's only statement on it is, it was from the Lord. Well, what was from the Lord? The, the sinful desire for the woman? God, made, God planted sin in Samson's heart and made him want to sin against God and kind of forced him to because God had a bigger plan at, at work. I hope there's something in you that says no way to that. Heresy to that. Absolutely not. That is impossible. God tempts no one to sin. But the Bible is making it clear to us that God is working out his purposes against the Philistines. God intends to bring judgment to the Philistines. And he is working that out in everything that is happening, including Samson's sin. Samson's sin is not something that happened outside the plan of God. And then God's like, let's make lemonade out of these lemons. This is the plan of God. That he is working out. Samson is wrong. Samson is guilty. Samson is rebelling against God. And God is at work. Okay, not but God is at work. Samson is rebelling against God and sinning. And God is at work. His will is being carried out. But the Bible just makes these statements to us and it doesn't explain to us exactly how that works, exactly how to figure that out, exactly how to get all those ducks in a row so we go, aha, this is exactly the way that it plays out. There's probably a few reasons for that. One is we are finite and God is infinite. And if we presume to understand everything about the holy, infinite God who has all power, all knowledge, all authority, um, then we're fooling ourselves. But here's another reason, because there was never a thought in the biblical writer's mind of indicting God for anything. There's never a thought in making that statement, it was from the Lord that like, oh, I'm accusing God of doing something wrong here. 
No, God forbid. The, the biblical writers, that's the farthest thing from their mind, to, to accuse God. That would be completely impossible. In the minds of the biblical authors, there's no tension here. They're not saying that God is directly willing or ordering sin. God is never the primary cause of sin. So we need, to, we need to have categories in our mind for a primary cause and a secondary cause. They never say God is the primary cause of sin. So for example, David takes a sinful census of Israel. He sins against the Lord. He rebels against the Lord in taking this census. And when we read in 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, it says, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he, that is God, incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So God is angry with Israel. He's going to judge Israel. He's going to bring a measure of, of, of judgment onto Israel. And 2 Samuel 24 says, So God incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So that sounds like God's directly causing David to sin. But that same account is given to us again in 1 Chronicles 21. And 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1 says this, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So when 2 Samuel tells it, God incited Israel... When First Chronicles tells it, Satan incited Israel. Is this a contradiction in Scripture? Never. Never is there a contradiction in Scripture. Well, what's going on? God willed for this event to happen, and he allowed Satan to tempt David as the means by which it would happen. He had a purpose to bring judgment on Israel and on David, and the means by which he carried out that purpose was Satan's tempting of David to sin. Now, this boggles our minds, admittedly. I see in a lot of your faces the looks of like, I don't understand nor like any of this. Here's what we have to do. We have to say, the Bible actually makes these statements. I think for many of us, we've allowed ourselves to go many years with hearing things we don't like and going, well, I'm not going to think about that and let's not talk about it. It's a low view of Scripture, friends. It's a low view of God. You don't have enough confidence in God to vindicate himself? You think you've got to make excuses for him? Never. When it comes to God's sovereignty and his hardening of the unbeliever, we need to understand how it is that, that the Bible talks about this, because it does talk about it plenty. Paul's example that he gives us in chapter 9 is Pharaoh. T ten times in the book of Exodus, as we hear the account of the Exodus, we are told God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Ten times. And four times in that account, in Exodus, we're told Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. So God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, God is not forcing Pharaoh to sin. We know that. We consider the whole counsel of Scripture, we know that God tempts no one to sin. God is never guilty of sin. He's not the author of sin. Pharaoh is doing every step of the way exactly what Pharaoh wants to do. But something much bigger is going on than just Pharaoh's plans of his wicked little heart. There's something much bigger in the eternal purposes of God. God is accomplishing his purposes in and through Pharaoh, even in the rebellious hardening of his heart, while still not violating Pharaoh's will. Pharaoh is doing what Pharaoh wants to do. God's not forcing him to do that. 
And so Paul's point, as he points us to Pharaoh in chapter 9, it's not denying that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Paul hasn't forgotten that Exodus says that four times. And all he can see are the ten times it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Paul hasn't forgotten that. He knows Pharaoh hardened his own heart as an act of his rebellious will, but he is saying that God's will was to harden Pharaoh's heart. That's what happened. And we might go, now how can that be? And I would just say ten times in the book of Exodus it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Ten is a lot, just so you know. If the Bible repeats itself ten times, we should go, I believe you. Uh, But God didn't do that by forcing unbelief on Pharaoh. He didn't force unbelief into Pharaoh's heart. What he did is allow Pharaoh's natural, sinful unbelief, the one that all of humanity is born with. Remember the things Paul said about us in the first three chapters of this book? What did God do for Pharaoh? He let that natural, fallen unbelief run its course without intervening. That natural unbelief was running its course in Paul as he persecuted the church. What changed that? God intervened. Paul was traveling to Damascus with a plan. God said, you're done with all that. You're mine. He didn't do that with Pharaoh. He didn't intervene by his spirit. He didn't give faith to Pharaoh. He didn't produce obedience in Pharaoh. No, he didn't do any of those things. He just let Pharaoh do what Pharaoh wanted to do. So so God's sovereignty on the one hand and and, and man's will on the other hand are compatible with one another. They're not at odds with one another. It's not an either or. It's not a contradiction. In Scripture, when it comes to sin, we see God's will and man's will being exercised simultaneously without one canceling the other one out. That's not the case when it comes to salvation. Again, consider Paul. Paul wasn't like, I'd love to worship Jesus. Paul's will was to persecute the church of Jesus, and God said, guess what? I'm overriding that. You're mine now. But when it comes to sin, that's not how God operates. God doesn't force anyone to sin. God doesn't force unbelief on anyone whatsoever. So God's will and man's will in in our sin work together. They don't cancel each other out. But make no mistake, God's will is ultimately sovereign. He will accomplish his purposes. No doubt about it. His will is always fulfilled. He is always accomplishing his good purposes. And in doing so, he never, ever, ever has forced a single human being to sin, not even once. That that would be a contradiction with God's character. So God's hardening work is called theologically or doctrinally Passive judicial hardening. In other words, God doesn't put unbelief into the heart of a person actively. Instead, he is, he's passive in that regard. He, he does not act upon them to bring salvation to them by their spirit. And if God doesn't do that, then a person is lost. Remember what Paul showed us in the early chapters. God has to act on a person to get them out of that state. It's passive, and it's judicial. In other other words, God's not being cruel. God's not being capricious. God's not being vindictive to people who would otherwise be good 
And he's just not going to let that happen for them. No, that's not the case either. Paul has told us none are righteous. No one seeks God. All men are bound up in our sin and rebellion against God. No, this is the righteous judge judging righteously. That's what we see going on in God's judicial hardening. It is God's passing over, passing by the sinner who only deserves judgment. And the result is hardening. D.A. Carson says judicial hardening is holy condemnation of a guilty person who are condemned to do and be what they themselves have chosen. That's judicial hardening. God says to the sinner, do what you want. God allows the sinner to harden their own heart. That's how it happens. That's how God hardens the heart of a sinner. It's not, a, it's not an active exertion on God's part upon their heart. It is, a, it is a hands-off passing them up. See, Christian, he didn't let you do that. You would have. I was set on that. I was set on that, and he wouldn't let me. He acted upon me. God, God works in his sovereignty, though, in a different way in the salvation of a sinner than he does in the hardening of the sinner. And one of the reasons that we struggle with this, God's hardening, and again, we must, because Scripture talks about it, we must at least struggle with it. One of the reasons we struggle is that we think God's exerting the same energy, to put it crudely, in the salvation of a sinner as he is in the hardening of a sinner. And that's just not true. It's not how God is operating. When, when God saves a sinner through his mercy and grace, he comes to that spiritually dead, helpless sinner, and he enables them to do something that's not in their nature. See, sinners are all doing what's in our nature and what we want to do. Because of the fall, we are so twisted up in sin that all we want to do is sin, all we do is sin, that's who we are, that's what we are, and we can all only act in accordance with our nature. And God comes to that sinner and enables them to do something else, namely to believe the gospel and repent of sin. He acts on their dead heart by his spirit. He breaks the chains as we sing in that great hymn, my chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. He enables us to do that. He, he, he directly and personally, by his Holy Spirit, acts on the sinner, regenerating them, making their dead heart live, giving them a new heart and a new mind. The result is obedience and faith. He is actively working on the Christian. But God works in a different way in the hardening of the sinner, in the hardening of the unbeliever. He does not come and put unbelief into the heart of the sinner. He does not come and put rebellion into the heart of the sinner the way that he comes and puts saving faith into the heart of the Christian. He doesn't come and intervene. He doesn't overcome their will like he does for the one whom he is saving. He doesn't act directly on them at all. He simply leaves the sinner to their sinfulness. He lets them do whatever they have set their sinful desires on, and as they do so, their heart grows harder and harder and harder. Hebrews 13 talks about being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. All God has to do is 
nothing. And the sinner will grow more and more hardened in their heart because of sin. All he has to do is not act. All he has to do is not send his spirit to to make that dead heart to live. And then we'll just grow more and more and more hardened. R.C. Sproul says, God doesn't force people into sin and then refuse to rescue them from it. However, he sometimes turns a sinner over to his sin, which is the most ghastly judgment any person could ever receive from the hands of God. God is sovereign over all things, including belief and unbelief, but God is not the author of unbelief. We are. This is who we are. God does not have to act on a person to make them rebellious or sinful or unbelieving. Just like you don't have to teach your kids to lie or bite or hit. You have to teach them not. You have to, you have to intervene or they're going to grow up to be Charles Manson. You, you have to intervene. You do not have to intervene for them to grow up being wicked, selfish sinners, do you? God passively and judicially hardens by allowing sinful men to do whatever their sinful hearts desire. As Romans 1 said, he hands us over to a debased mind. That's the hardening of God. To be handed over to a debased mind that it allows us to pursue all of our own wicked, sinful hearts' desires and to reap the consequences of our actions in judgment. And so Paul here, in in, in demonstrating this, gives us three Old Testament texts to show us what this hardening looks like. Look at verse 8 with me. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. He's quoting Isaiah 29, verse 10. For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep. He's closed your eyes and covered your heads. God has given to them, and Paul's talking about Israel here, We can say this of the unbeliever who's being hardened in their sin, a kind of deep sleep that that leads to total spiritual confusion, kind of confusion where you're oblivious to your surroundings. And this, this spiritual stupor is one of the defining marks of unbelieving humanity, isn't it? Just going from one vain philosophy to another to try and figure things out. To try and gain some kind of of salvation, however they define it. The prophet Isaiah, in the verse previous to this, describes it as a kind of intense drunkenness. Staggering around with no spiritual direction at all. You don't know where you came from, and you don't know where you're going, and you can't put a thought together to save your life. Does that not describe our world? Staggering around in darkness staggering around blindly from one empty philosophy to the next, unable and unwilling to hear the truth. He goes on in verse 8 with another Old Testament quotation, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. So, so Paul has quoted the prophets, and now Paul quotes the law from Deuteronomy 29. There is a willful blindness on the part of the Jews. This, of course, is true of all unbelievers. As we hear the things Paul's saying about un- unbe- unbelieving Israel here, we have to say, this is what unbelievers are like. John chapter 3, verse 19, the Lord Jesus says this, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather 
than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. God doesn't have to work that into the heart of a person. The person is evil and so he hates the light. So he flees from the light. He rejects the light. He doesn't want his wickedness exposed. Jesus says he, he hates the light because of that. God doesn't have to work that into the heart of the, 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 the unbeliever. That's what our hearts were like. No, the only way that we, though, come to the light and love the light is if he draws us out, if he brings us, if he acts upon us. And again, this is our world. This is the world we're living in. It hates the light. It loves darkness. The, the consequences of this are, are, are moral intellectual, spiritual darkness. Moral, look at the world around. Moral darkness like you've never seen. Think, things that 10 years ago unbelievers would have laughed at as nonsense. You, you, you can have some, some of the most famous uh, people who just a couple of years ago were the heroes of the LGBT crowd and now when they say you shouldn't medically cause a little boy to become a little girl at age five, and they are now a pariah of society because how can you be so hateful? It is moral insanity is what it is. Moral darkness, intellectual darkness. Why can't you have a conversation with anyone about anything that you don't agree on without being called a bigot or a Nazi or a racist? It's intellectual darkness, spiritual darkness, running to anything. There's actually a major resurgence in witchcraft in our day now among the young, um, young sort of millennial generation, young, young ladies in particular, into crystals and tarot cards and, and all, all manner of spiritual darkness. We see every new vain philosophy becoming popular. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. It's, it's darkness. All you think of the things of God is it's stupid. Oh, that's the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There we see that interplay again. Paul has said, and we've read in other places in scriptures just this morning, that it's God who, who makes them not able to see. And now Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, it's the God of this world. It's Satan who makes them unable to see. It's, 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 it's God working through means. He doesn't have to directly work on a person's heart for them not to, to see, for them to be blind and deaf to the gospel. They already are. He has to work on them for them not to be. But, but this hardening produces an increasing insanity in a person, an increasing hardness and blindness as they stumble around in darkness, even as they think they're very intelligent and philosophical and, oh, sounds so wise. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's famous fictional detective Sherlock Holmes was on a case once with his trusty sidekick, Dr. Watson. And in the case of the investigation, they had to camp outdoors. They pitched a tent under the stars and they fell asleep. And sometime in the middle of the night, Sherlock woke Dr. Watson up and he said, Watson, look at the stars. Tell me the deductions you make. Watson rubs his eyes as he wakes up and he looks up 
from his sleep, and he says, well, I see millions of stars. Even if a few of those were planets, it's quite possible that some of those planets are like Earth, and if there are a few planets like Earth out there, there might also be life. And Holmes said, Watson, you idiot, someone stole our tent. (laughs) This unbelieving world in its hardened condition sounds so brilliant. Well, it misses the entire point. Sounds so philosophical and so, so smart. Well, it guesses at things that it has no idea about. Well, it, well, it misses what is right in front of their face, plainly visible in front of their face. That's the condition of this hardening of sin. Verse 9 then, Paul says, it's his third quote, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So he quoted the law, he quoted the prophets, and now he brings in the Psalms, specifically Psalm 69, which is what's called an imprecatory psalm. Imprecatory psalms are those psalms where where it's a prayer for justice against God's enemies. This is one of those psalms. And just two quick things to note about this quotation from David here. First, David prays, let their table become a snare and a trap and a means of retribution to them. In other words, the table, the blessings that God has provided. Remember Psalm 23? You've prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. This this picture of bounty and protection and, and safety and security and blessing. And now David is praying, and Paul brings into this discussion, these blessings that God has granted become the means by which they're hardened. It's why more people fail the test of prosperity than they do the test of adversity. When things are going badly, it's not uncommon for a person to turn their eyes to God and call out for help. And when things are going well, we become numb. We don't need God. We're not interested. These blessings, these these gifts that we have as God causes the the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the just and unjust alike, all they do for the sinner is harden them more and more and more. The table becomes a snare. The table becomes a retribution. Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to to go to heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. Maybe you've heard the dumb thing, people. You know there was a spot in the wall on Jerusalem called the eye of the needle. I'm just sharing this because it's a pet peeve. You'd have to totally unburden the camel, take all of his burdens off, and he'd get down as low as he could, and he'd shimmy through. That's totally made up. There's not a spot in the wall called the eye of the needle. Someone completely made that up so that they would have a killer sermon illustration. And you hear it, and you're like, that is so amazing. No, it's not. It's stupid. Here's Jesus' point. It's impossible. Earthly, humanly speaking, it cannot be done. No more than you could squeeze a camel through the eye of the needle. Now, God could do that. God made the needle. God made the camel. But we can't. Not, not, not on our own. Why does this happen? Why is it harder for a rich man to go to heaven? And by the way, rich man, like you should just read that and go, yeah, that's me. I'm the rich man. You got indoor plumbing for Pete's sake. Why is it though? It's because good things often become a snare, a snare to us. Sinful hearts take temporary 
earthly, vanishing things and treat them as ultimate, and we put our hope in them. That's the first thing. Their table became a snare. And secondly, notice the language he uses here in verse 10. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see. They cannot see. In verse 8, they will not see. As an act of will, they will not see. And in verse 10, they cannot see. Their will not led to their cannot. John MacArthur, speaking of the unbeliever, says, when they, will not be- when they would not believe, the judgment came, and they could not believe. God judicially sealed their unbelief by blinding their eyes and hardening their hearts as a result of their stubborn unbelief. That's God's judgment. He doesn't have to act on them for that to happen. He just leaves them in it. That's judicial hardening. Hardening their hearts because of their refusal to believe. Sealing them in that cage of spiritual darkness. As Paul painted that picture for us in the early chapters of Romans, down in this pit of filth and and disgust and rebellion and sin, locked in in a cage at the bottom of a pit, not being able to be free and not wanting to be free. And all that this judicial hardening is, God saying, stay. Stay where you're happy. C.S. Lewis, who has some theological issues, he makes a statement at one point famously, there are only two kinds of people in the world, those who will say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God will say, thy will be done. It's judicial hardening. God saying to the sinner, do what you want. I will leave you to it turning them over to the consequences of their wickedness, rejecting them in response to their rejection of him. And now, I understand that this doctrine offends many people. But this truth offends many people. And just to be clear, I do not apologize. Just, Just to be blunt with you. It is taught in the Bible, and so it is good. And I must teach it. I would be unfaithful if I would not, if I refused to do it. Friend, God God hasn't called you to discern who's elect and who's not. He's instructed you, or he hasn't instructed you to decipher his hidden will that is far too infinite for our puny little minds. No, he has commanded you repent and believe. That's our part. Nowhere in scripture are we going to read God, make a statement like this and go, now figure it out how it all works together. Repent and believe. So on the authority of the commands of Scripture, on the hope of the promises of Scripture, if you see yourself as a sinner in need, in need of the righteousness that only God can give, if you fear I might be one of these people that these verses are describing, then come to Christ. Come to Him. Come in faith, trusting all that he has done. Trusting that that he has done everything on your behalf. Believing in his promises to make you holy before God. Trust that his death is enough to pay for your sins. Accept God's sufficient provision in Christ. And then believe the promises of the word of God. That anyone who believes in Christ will receive eternal life. That anyone who comes to him, he will not cast out. We don't have to figure out the hidden eternal purposes of God in his sovereign choosing. 
we have to come to him in repentance and faith and rest in his promises that all who come, he will welcome and he will never cast out. Believer, you can rest in that. We can rest in that. We can rest knowing that God is sovereign over all. John MacArthur said well once, if you could lose your salvation, you'd do it. Look at your life. You really think you have the power to to walk in obedience and righteousness? You know the thoughts you think. You know the pride that cycles through you. We can rest secure that if God is sovereign over all of this, then his promise to hold us fast in his hand will stand. That, the, that, 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 yes, the unbeliever who's being hardened may have lost it, but, but the elect have obtained it. That's what Paul says here in these verses. How, how glorious is this? And what's more, knowing that, that, that it's God who's sovereign over all, that he's the one who saves, that, that he's the only one who can open up the eyes of the unbeliever to see open up their ears to hear, open up their heart to live. We should have every confidence to preach the gospel. We need not be afraid. We need not be hesitant because we don't have the words. God's given us the words. It's his gospel. We are weak, yes. Our knowledge is limited, yes. Our speech is flawed, yes but it's God who saves. It's God who opens up the ears of the sinner to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit in the proclamation of the gospel. And that means we don't have to be perfect because God is. Well, just feel that weight come off your shoulders. Feel that excuse being ripped away from you. The gospel of God is powerful even when we are not. God saves sinners. Our call is to be faithful. And friends, there's a lot we can't do, but we can do that. We can be faithful. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, we acknowledge these truths we've been studying in these chapters are difficult for us. They challenge us. Lord, let us see your glory in the cross of Christ. We who are undeserving. Lord, we, we who recognize that there's not a, a single person who's ever been judged unrighteously by you. All deserve death and condemnation and hell. And you and your mercy and your grace have chosen many for salvation, among them us. Lord, we can't understand that. We couldn't earn it. We're aware that we don't deserve it. Lord, with that knowledge, by your Spirit producing us joy and peace and hope and dedication and faithfulness and courage, Lord, would you make us increasingly faithful in these evil days? And Lord, there are many, there are many whom you will save if we will take the gospel. So I pray, God, you'd make us faithful to do that to take your saving gospel to this lost, dying, darkened world, knowing, trusting in your sovereignty that in our proclamation of the gospel, 
frail though we may be, that you have a remnant chosen by grace whose eyes you will open and ears you will hear. You will, you will open to hear the gospel. So we pray, God, that you would do that work. We pray, Lord, for our community. We pray for our nation that you would grant repentance and faith. Pray for a, a revival to come and that you would use us as a means to that end for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.